If you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And so we're working section by section. And if you have a Bible with you, I would like you to open to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17. As you do that, um, I want just to let you know, maybe not all of you know this, but our senior high youth group, many of them, not all of them, but a good share of them are up at Camp Barakel, and they will be traveling home this afternoon, so I'd ask that you would pray for them as they make their way back. So I think with leaders, they had 47 people go. So a really good group, and uh, prayed that they might have a great uh, time this weekend. I trust that they did, and pray for them. Pray for them as they, they make that long trek home. Well, this morning, I want to talk to us, I want to share with us from this text on the subject of courage. Courage is an interesting thing. In the secular world outside the church, when we think of courage, we think of something that we reach deep down inside of ourselves for. Whatever our religion or lack of religion, we say, you know, don't be a sissy, um, be strong, be courageous, fight like a man. But the Bible gives us a very different thought on courage. And I want you to think with me this morning, where does our courage come from? Where has the courage come from for those Christians in the past and in the present who have laid down their lives for the gospel, who have been martyred for the gospel. Now, I don't want to pretend this morning that I'm going to give an exhaustive answer to that, to that thought or question, but Peter does give us some very practical insights on the subject of being courageous, whether man or woman, boy or girl. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17, he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This morning we're going to look at a courageous statement and then four ways to live courageously. A courageous statement and then four ways to live courageously. First of all, a courageous statement. After finishing an important teaching section on submission, Peter returns to a familiar subject. Doing good works as part of our testimony for Christ before a watching world. Now we have just seen in a long teaching section over the last number of sermons the importance of submission. We are to submit to the government. We are to submit to our employers. The greatest example 
of submission is Jesus Christ himself, who in the face of intense suffering entrusted himself completely to his Father. We saw wives be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then last week we saw how important it was for us as the body of Christ to have unity of mind. And now Peter returns to this whole thought of our testimony before a watching world. I remind us of 1 Peter 2.12, which was actually the verse we used for local evangelism month back in October. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And that's really the thought this morning. He was returning to that whole subject. Live such a good life among a watching world, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Oh, let them see your good deeds and glorify God. In verse 1, Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word good here refers generally to a life characterized by generosity, unselfishness, kindness and thoughtfulness towards others. That's what he means by the word good. Who is going to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Just think of those words, generosity, unselfishness, kindness and thoughtfulness. The word zealous means intensely or with enthusiasm, to do something with intensity, to do something with enthusiasm. It is where the Jewish zealots got their name from. In the first century, the Jewish zealots, excuse me, were a very prominent group. They wanted to see Israel free of all foreign rule. They wanted self-rule. They wanted self-governance for Israel. They didn't want the Romans ruling over them, and they would do whatever it took to try to achieve that. They would lie, they would steal, they would carry out assassinations. They were zealous for their cause. And what Peter is saying here, I want you to have that kind of zeal, but not for that. I want you to have that kind of zeal for doing good. I want you to be zealous for doing good. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are determined, enthusiastic, intense for doing good. Now, oftentimes, when we are zealous to do good, people will respect you rather than harm you. They may not agree with you. They may fervently disagree with you, but they will oftentimes respect you because you are a person who seeks always to do what is good. But that is not always true. Oftentimes it is true, but that is not always true. Sometimes Christians will suffer at the hands of others because of their stand for Christ and for the good that they do. Sometimes we will suffer for doing the right thing, for seeking to zealously do good. Now, 
It is important for all of us to know here this morning that this section of Scripture is talking about suffering as a result of the hostile action of others towards us. So he is specifically talking about a suffering, a persecution that happens at the hands of those who are hostile towards us. And I say that because there are different kinds of suffering, as you know. A person may suffer with a terminal illness. A person may suffer for a long period of time because of some physical state that they are in. Some people suffer because of poverty or from malnutrition. And certainly, God's word speaks to those kinds of suffering. And God honors those kinds of suffering when they are done with a full trust and honoring of him. But that is not what Peter's talking about here. He is specifically talking about the hostility of others towards us. So in verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he says, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so make sure, make sure that if you are suffering at the hands of others, that it is because of righteousness. Sometimes we suffer because we have done something wrong. We have done something evil or sinful. And we are suffering because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer at the hands of others because, quite frankly, we are obnoxious or mean or overbearing in our approach, and we grate people the wrong way. Make sure that you are suffering for righteousness, for doing what is good, for standing for Christ. And Peter says, if you do that, you will be blessed. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now the word blessed as used here does not mean that you will be happy all the time, nor does it mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will be convenient or pleasurable. It doesn't mean that at all. When he says you will be blessed, he means that you will have the deep down satisfaction of knowing you did the right thing. You know, we say that to our children from the time they are very young. Always make sure you do the right thing. That you do those things that are obedient to God in accordance with his word, and that's what this means. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will have the satisfaction and joy of knowing that you have stood for the King of Kings, that you have stood for the most important cause, not on just on the face of the earth, but in the entire universe. You have been an ambassador for Christ. You have been a witness for your Savior. If that's why you are suffering, oh, you will be blessed. Yes, you will be blessed. No one said this better than Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday. If you're not familiar with it, it is Jesus' longest recorded sermon and one perhaps his most famous. The longest rendering of it is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. All three of those chapters record his Sermon on the Mount. 
And in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 through 12, this is what Jesus says. Listen carefully. Remember I told you that Peter has a special affinity, a special like, it appears, for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, because you stand for Christ, because you are zealous for good works, then you stand with God's children throughout the ages who have stood for righteousness. You stand with the prophets of old. So he ends verse 14 saying, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That is actually almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, the great Assyrian army, the most powerful empire on earth at that time, is coming against the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, led by King Ahaz. And they are bearing down on Jerusalem, and the people are afraid. The people are in dread. And the prophet Isaiah comes to the king, and he comes to the people, and he says, Do not fear as they fear, and do not be in dread as they are. Put your trust and your hope in Emmanuel, and he will save you, and he will protect you. And so Peter says to these Christians to whom he is writing, who are undergoing great persecution in the Roman Empire, who have more persecution on the horizon, he says to them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So his great statement of courage is, be zealous to do what is good. And even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Oh, my brother, oh, my sister, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, our second point is four ways to live courageously. This section is very practical. These are things that you can take with you and you can live out every single day. The first way to live courageously is to honor Christ as the Lord of every area of your life. To honor Christ as Lord of every area of your life. In verse 15 it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word holy means to be set apart to God. It isn't just being set apart from sin. It is being set apart to God. You have given yourself to him to live in his power and in his strength. In fact, some English translations have set apart Christ as Lord in your life or sanctified Christ as Lord in your life. In your hearts, in the deepest recesses of your being, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It means an absolute submission on your part 
to Jesus Christ's control, teaching, and guidance in your life. Absolute submission. A total willingness to submit to him, to his control, to his guidance, to his teaching in your life. It is to declare and submit to Jesus Christ as your supreme majesty and master. I am yours, O Lord. My life is yours. I submit to you as the Lord of every area of my life. Let there be no area of my life that isn't under the complete lordship of your sovereign rule. The poet Carolyn Noel wrote this little poem about this verse. And she says this, In your hearts enthrone him, there let him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. And that's what Peter is saying. In your hearts enthrone him. There let him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. In the little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws, when you come to the end, the person is invited to make a decision to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And they give the illustration that to receive Christ as Savior and Lord means that you get off the throne of your life and Jesus gets on the throne of your life. You are no longer the one who's in control. Jesus takes control. He applies his salvation to your life and becomes the Lord of your life. What Peter is saying, what you did at salvation, live out every day. Let Jesus have his rightful place on the throne of your life every single day. To live courageously is to honor Christ as the Lord of every area of your life. Now here is where courage is different for us. We don't just say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, don't be afraid, be a man. No, we say, give yourself to Jesus. Let him rule every area of your life every day. That's where you're going to find courage. And I think when you see a martyr, whether it be from the first century or our own century, when we hear of people courageously laying down their lives for the faith, you can be sure that Jesus is the Lord of their life. And he has been the Lord of their life in every area. So when that time comes, the courage within them just wells up. The second way to live courageously is to constantly be prepared to make a defense of your faith in Christ. In the last part of verse 15, it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The word defense here, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That word defense is from where we get our English words, apology and apologetics. They are two very different words. Apology, of course, means to say you're sorry. Apologetics 
is something very different. It means to give a defense of something. And in this case, to give a defense of the Christian faith. We have in Christianity internationally people who are called apologists. They are people who make their living defending the faith. They engage a secular culture on some very difficult issues. Maybe on a university campus, it may be on in a, in, a, in a secular organization, it may be debating an atheist or an agnostic, but there are people who have been gifted by God to do this. Ravi Zacharias, Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig, um, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, and there are a whole list of these very gifted people who defend the faith, and what they do is called apologetics. Apologetics technically means a formal depend, excuse me, a formal defense in a judicial courtroom. That in a judicial setting you are able to defend your faith. Now, Paul uses the word, excuse me, Peter uses the word informally to refer to a person's ability to answer those who ask questions about their Christian faith. So I don't want you to think that you have to be Ravi Zacharias. I don't want you to think that you have to be Norman Geisler. These men are very gifted. But, however, we all are asked to give a defense of the hope that is in us. What is the hope that is in us? The hope that is in us is that my sins are forgiven that I have been brought into a right, clean, holy relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when I die, I'm going to heaven. That's the hope that is in you. And you are to always be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense to those people who ask you about this hope. It is someone who says to you, how do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know that you have a personal relationship with God? How do you know that? Tell me about that. Tell me how I can know that. And notice the phrase, always be prepared. This is not a complicated thing. It is actually a very simple thing. And here's the thought. The better you excuse me, the better prepared you are with the simple truths of the gospel, the better, or excuse me, the more confident and courageous you will be in your witness for Christ. Let me say that again. The better prepared you are with the simple truths of the gospel, the more confident and courageous you will be in your witness for Christ. So if someone asks you about the hope that is in you, don't let it catch you off guard. Don't, don't let it make you fear and tremble. Don't let it make you nervous. Be prepared. Again, you're not going to be asked to answer every complicated and difficult question out there, but you are asked to make a defense of how you came to know Christ. How did you get saved? How does a person come to know Jesus as Savior? I shared this with you before. What I really encourage people to do 
first and foremost is be under good teaching. In the church, in a Sunday school class, if you're in a small group Bible study, consistently be under good teaching. That's one thing. The other thing is, is master a simple gospel presentation. I remember a number of years ago, I preached a whole series of messages on the four spiritual laws, just as an example of how you could take a simple gospel presentation, a simple track, and be very familiar with it. And some people are more comfortable with different presentations, so it isn't a one-size-fits-all. For some, it might be the four spiritual laws. For others, it might be the Romans road. For some, it might be evangelism explosion. For some, it might be share Jesus without fear, which we've used here on, an, on numerous occasions and taught through. Whatever it may be, find something. We have a wonderful little book in the visitor area that we give away to people by Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough. Wonderful little book. Wouldn't take you a real long time to read through it. You know what you could do? Read through it and through it and through it and through it. Just because he has some very good material for a gospel presentation. Just find something like that so you're always prepared. And the Holy Spirit will use that to give you courage in your witness. Now the last phrase that Peter uses in verse 15 is absolutely critical to our witness for Christ. I have always taught that it's the most important phrase in the verse. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I want to shout that from the mountaintops. When you witness for Christ, do it with gentleness and respect. Synonyms would be meekness and kindness. Do it with meekness and kindness. Folks, there's no place for Christians to be overbearing and rude and obnoxious in their presentation of the gospel. When I see people doing that, I'll just be honest with you this morning, it makes me sick. You're not there to win an argument, you're there to win them to Christ. Hey, you're not there to win an argument and raise your fist because I won that debate. No. You are there to win them to Christ. You are there to make the gospel attractive and appealing. And remember this, most people, there are exceptions, but most people come to know Christ gradually over a long period of time. You are just one person in a link, in a chain of events in their lives. Make sure you are a good witness for Christ. And here's the important part. When you do it with gentleness and respect, when you share the gospel with others in gentleness and respect, the power will come from the gospel and not from the force of your personality. Okay? It will come from the force of the gospel. Paul told the church at Corinth, my message and my preaching are not are not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's how we want it. Now I want you to feel the power of this last phrase. 
when someone is in your face, when someone is yelling at you in anger, you remain calm and you share the gospel with gentleness and respect. The second way to live courageously is to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The third way to live courageously is to have a clear conscience that is saturated with the word of God. To have a clear conscience that is saturated with the word of God. In verse 16, Peter says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who, are, who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The human conscience is an interesting thing. Philosophers and theologians have puzzled over this exactly what it is for centuries. I'll tell you what it is not. Your conscience is not the voice of God, and it is not always reliable. Okay? Jiminy Cricket said to Pinocchio, Good theology here. Let your conscience be your guide. And there is some truth to that. And in many pop songs over the last three or four decades, that has been a line in many songs, let your conscience be your guide. But I want you to know that that conscience, that whatever, however we define it, or describe it, that moral barometer in your life is only as good as the information given to it. Okay? Your conscience is only as good as the information given to it. Now, again, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Our conscience is God-given and it is important, but it is totally dependent on what is fed to it. Sometimes we don't have a guilty conscience when we should. And sometimes we have a guilty conscience when we shouldn't. Let me explain. Even as a Christian, you may dabble in a particular sin for a long period of time. Some secret sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe you're engaging in some secret activity and you've done it for so long and been so resistant to the Holy Spirit that your conscience no longer makes you feel guilty for it when you should feel guilt. Conversely, sometimes we have a guilty conscience when we shouldn't. Let's say that in your past, you have something that you are ashamed of and embarrassed of. But Christ has forgiven you. He has taken that sin and buried it in the depths of the deepest sea. It is completely forgiven. But on a regular basis, you still feel guilty for it. You should not. You should not. By the power of the word of God, you need at some point 
whether through counseling or study of Scripture, to come to the point where you know that you are forgiven. It could be that some of you grew up in churches that were very legalistic, that were very rules-oriented, and they measured spirituality by these outward things you did, and you constantly feel like you don't measure up, and you're going by these outward standards rather than by relying on Christ in you, and you feel guilty when you shouldn't feel guilty. Here is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, have a good conscience that lines itself up with Scripture. Immerse yourself in the Word of God so that your conscience is totally guided by what God says in His Word so that when you do feel guilt, it is real God-given guilt. And you don't feel guilty for things you shouldn't feel guilt about. And what he is saying here is having a good conscience, a scripture-filled conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Then, if you have a scripture-filled conscience, you won't have to worry when people slander and revile you. Let me give you a wonderful thought this morning been very helpful to me I give it to you I'm not saying that you're perfect but if you are leading as best you know how a Christ-centered good life you don't have to worry about what other people are saying about you isn't that freeing if you are living a Christ-centered good life as best you know how in accordance with scripture then you don't even have to worry about all those people are saying about you because if they're saying untrue things, they're going to be proven to be liars. And that's what Peter is saying here. Live in such a way that those who criticize you, who speak ill of you, will be put to shame. They will be put to shame because they dared to criticize you and the way that you live. So the third way to live courageously is to have a good Scripture-saturated conscience. The fourth way to live courageously is to be willing to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. To be willing to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. So in a sense, Peter is coming full circle here. In verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Again, I say to you, make sure that if you suffer, that you are suffering for righteousness' sake because of your stand for Christ and because of your zeal to do good. If you are suffering for doing something wrong, something evil, something sinful, then you bring no glory to God and no good to yourself. If you are suffering because you have knowingly made bad choices, then that brings no glory to God and no good to you. But what Peter is saying, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer, to suffer at the hands of others because of our stand for Christ and because of the good that we do. Sometimes God is going to allow you 
to have others be hostile towards you because you are a Christian, because of the stand you take for him. And when, you, when that happens, suffer well. God will bless you. God will honor you. And once again, as I have said in so many sermons recently, Jesus is the perfect example of suffering for doing what is good and right. They mocked him, they beat him, they hurled insults at him, and he entrusted himself to his Father. But think of this with me this morning. When we suffer for doing good, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We are as much like our master as we ever have been. When we suffer for doing good, we join hands with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Oh, I'm not saying that we suffer in the same way that they do. There are certainly different degrees of suffering. But when we suffer because of Christ, because we have been zealous to do good in his name, it's as if we are joining hands with them. It's as if our spirits across the whole world are united together in Christ. Let us stand for Jesus. Let us do good in his name. And when we suffer for doing good, the gospel becomes glorious and attractive. What is so important in that person's life that they are willing to accept the insults, the slander, and the persecution. Oh, when we suffer for our Savior, and we suffer for doing good, the gospel looks so appealing, so attractive, so winsome. John Piper said this, Christianity was born in the world of totalitarianism. It was not strange to be persecuted. What is strange historically is that we are not. We live in the line of brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered for him. And let us be willing to do the same. For the first 300 years, Christians had no legal protection in the Roman Empire. To become a follower of Jesus meant risking everything. To come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior meant you risked it all. And I say to us this morning, let us be like them. Let us be like them in every small way that we can and in every big way that we can. Let us live with courage. Let Jesus be the Lord of every area of your life. Always be prepared to give an answer to the simple truths of the gospel message that has given you hope. Seek to live with a clear conscience, a good conscience that is saturated with the will of God. And remember, sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer, to suffer for Christ and to suffer for doing what is right. Let's pray together. Father, make us a courageous people. 
courageous in Christ, willing to stand for that which is good and right in your sight, willing to stand for Christ and to never, ever be ashamed of him. Because every time we lift a prayer to you, we pray that prayer in his name. Amen.